This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. In his new book, Crimes of Dissent, Civil Disobedience, Criminal Justice, and the Politics of Conscience, our guest today, Jarrett Lavelle, provides a fascinating view of protests from the ground, giving voice to those who refuse to remain silent by risking punishment for their political actions. Lavelle is Associate Professor of Politics, Administration, and Justice at California State University, Fullerton, and the host of KUCI's Justice or Just Us. Jarrett Lavelle, welcome to Weekly Signals. It's about time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. How are you doing, Okay, Jared? goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning. How are you doing? I, I'm doing well. How are you? Good. Are you getting ready for your uh, big trip? You're leaving? I, I am on. I will be uh, taken off in just a couple of hours after the show, so I'm excited about it. Are you going to get arrested? Is that what's... I am actually going on a vacation. Oh. So most of my vacations involve arrests, but not this one. <laughs> not this one. So, terrific, so tell me, Crimes of Dissent, what, what inspired you to write the book? Well, I uh, have you know, been politically active for, for a long time, and I've always been um, fascinated or uh, disturbed, is perhaps a better word, of the uh, overlap between um, freedom of speech, freedom of expression, you know, we just heard Mario Savo, Fabio, and um, and criminalization. So whether we're talking about obscenity laws or hate speech clauses or, or hate crimes, I've always been fascinated by that. Uh, the idea that uh, it's really hard to tell when speech ends and action begins. And uh, so that's always been just kind of an academic interest. Of course, uh, when the, the rubber really hit the road was when I was arrested at the Republican National Convention in uh, 2004 in New York. And I was one of about 150 people arrested for, uh, believe it or not, assembling in a <laughs> an assembly place known as Times Square, New York. So, yeah. so, so, what did that teach you? Well, how did that uh, how did that change things for you? Well, I think what had happened was, um, you know, I was arrested. I was held for 36 hours. Uh, I went through the entire system. Uh, everything from, you know, the, the, the strip searching to, you know, taking the showers to getting uh, examined for any diseases and whatnot and um, charged with a felony. And I thought, wow, if, if this is what happens to people who, who aren't trying to get arrested for a political cause, uh, how does the system deal with people who deliberately try to get arrested for a political cause? And uh, although I had protested a lot, I'd never gotten arrested and uh, never really bothered to inquire as to how the criminal justice system handles uh, activists who uh, deliberately and very publicly break the law. And it kind of raises a lot of questions because it can't be rehabilitated. You know, retribution doesn't seem to be uh, a a proper goal, and uh, activists probably are not likely to be deterred. So it raised a bunch of questions. Now, uh, just on the first level there, how does policing dissent work? How, how are the police brought into this equation, and, and do you think they're doing a good job, or, or uh, are they not? Well, from whose perspective? From the police's perspective <laughs> or from the activist's perspective? Uh, really, either way. I mean, do they feel like they're doing a good job, do you think? 
I think they feel like they're doing a good job. I think, um, you know, they have, through a series of policies and city ordinances and permit requirements and the like, uh, they've done a very good job of um, removing dissent from the public eye. So one of the reasons I was arrested in uh, New York City at the Republican National Convention, uh, listeners may recall, is that the city of New York refused to give anti-war protesters a permit to use Central Park, the Great Lawn in Central Park. And we're finding this uh, repeatedly that when there's a, a major event, either nationally or, or internationally, that's going to attract a lot of dissenting voices, uh, governments are um, increasingly reluctant to issue protest permits. Um, and if they do issue permits, you're usually relegated to someplace far from the locus of, uh, of action. And uh, it, it you know, what's the point of showing up to protest a meeting of the World Economic Forum that's taking place at the Waldorf Astoria when you've been given a permit to gather 10 blocks away? And, and doesn't that kind of uh, defeat part of the dissent itself? Isn't part of dissent, kind, I don't mean to say surprising, but isn't it supposed to catch people a bit unaware? Absolutely. I mean, there's certainly, uh, there's certainly that element of it if activists are going to engage in strategies of direct action where the protest isn't just symbolic, but they're actually trying to intervene. You know, um, anti-war protesters who, who block access to a military recruiting center or uh, anti-abortion or pro-life activists, however we want to term it, who, um, you know, block access to uh, a Planned Parenthood clinic. Those are actions that directly intervene with the policy. Well, police have made it in increasingly difficult to even get access to the vicinity where uh, the decision makers or the practitioners are carrying out what's perceived as an injustice. We're speaking with Jarrett Lavelle. The book is Crimes of Dissent. Well, no, I'm just, this is fascinating because uh, on on. Just as you're describing it, we know have protest zones. The permit process has become uh, increasingly onerous. Uh, the, the courts seem to be complicit in this. The courts seem to be going along with this uh, uh, diminishing idea of the of the public square, which has been uh, a part of the political process and our the fabric of really uh, speech and democracy in this country since its very founding. Uh, and am I correct in saying that, that the courts essentially have narrowed what we now consider? At one point, you could go to a mall and call that the town square, and you were allowed to be able to hand out literature uh, and, and engage in political activity. I increasingly, that's more and more difficult. We have really narrowed uh, uh, what we call the town squares. Yeah, I'm not one who, who is too familiar with, with all the legal decisions, but um, so I'm not sure how much it is the court as much as it is what you just stated. It's the corporatization of, of the public sector. So there is no, no town square anymore. It's now a, a shopping mall, and shopping, shopping malls are corporate facilities. So one of the, the big protests that kicked off the pro-peace anti-war movement, and I'm sure you guys have covered it on your show, was uh, an individual who was wearing an anti-war shirt at a shopping mall in Albany, New York. Mm -hmm. uh, and I believe he was with his son, and he and his son were asked to either remove the shirt or be arrested. Well, what that did was it triggered, um, you know, copycat, if you will, uh, copycat protests across the country, including here in Orange County, where about 400 
members of the Orange County Peace Coalition converged on the uh, the Irvine Spectrum, which is a, a large outdoor corporate controlled shopping mall, and we all you know showed up wearing anti-war shirts and sandwich boards and the like. But the idea that a place where most people are going to gather on the weekends is not a place where freedom of speech is allowed uh, is chilling. And the courts are perhaps powerless if we're talking about private property, because the courts are often more concerned about private property than public speech. What happened? Uh, Did did anyone uh, from your group arrest? Were they arrested when they showed up at the Spectrum? Uh, We weren't. There were, you know... 400 of us. And, and that goes to one of the, the strategies of, of dissent, is that you want to be sure that you have that critical mass so yeah. it renders the system incapable of, of dealing with you. If, if you've got a local jailhouse that only has a capacity to hold four people, and you've got 400 people, your message wins out. We're speaking with Jarrett Lavelle. Um, the book is Crimes of Dissent, Civil, Civil Disobedience, Criminal Justice, and the Politics of Conscience. Um, you, in your book, you talk about, and, and I think for people who listen to Weekly Signals on a regular basis, they know more or less where we're coming from politically and more left of center, certainly. But in your book, you talked with a, a people from across the political spectrum about protest. And, uh, and you, what was your, what was your, uh, your take on, on, how, on the different people across the spectrum and how the, the similarities between all of them? Uh, um, regarding protest. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. There's a, a passage in the book where I interview someone from the War Resisters League who has um, used her body to uh, block access to a, a military recruiting center. And I asked her her opinion about people from uh, Operation Save America, which is a group that is uh, prominently featured in the book, and these are individuals who who block access to uh, you know women's health clinics, and it was it was really a great exchange, getting her to acknowledge that her tactics, the ideology might be different, but the tactics are the same. But then when pressed, the ideology is is somewhat similar too. Both are trying to protect life as they define it, both feel that if someone is allowed to enter that facility, harm is going to happen. And uh, so for me, it was really fascinating to interview people that I don't necessarily agree with ideologically, but uh, who have incredibly persuasive arguments. And in fact, I've incorporated into some of my speech, I've incorporated some of the arguments of those on the political right. And so it's it's quite interesting. I think often you could read some of the, the interview transcripts of people on the far right and interview the interview transcripts of people on the, the far left. And if you didn't know what the label was, you could become confused. Now, let's just reel it back a little bit, too, and, and talk about the uh, commodification of dissent and how dissent has, has uh, well, actually gotten a bum rap over the last several decades in, in that by the time it becomes any meaningful dissent, it's, it's uh, bought off. Uh, it's it's commodified. Is is uh, dissent still effective? Well, that's uh, that's a tough one. That's one that I, I struggle with um, each and every day. I mean, mm-hmm. we we've, we've got uh, you know there's you know there's so much written about how um, 
dissent has become corporatized. So you, you, you know, w- w- I think it was Abby Hoffman who uh, years ago in uh, Steal This Book or Revolution for the Hell of It opens the book with an advertisement from a soap product, which is, you know, a revolutionary soap, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and, and the idea that we use terms like, you know, revolutionary or there was a Saab commercial, I think it was, where uh, it said, be different by a Saab. Of course, mm-hmm. if you take that uh, mentality to its logical conclusion, then everybody will have a Saab and you're just one amongst the masses. Um, So, you know, with with the mentality now that there are protest permits, that you have to seek permission from the very government that you're protesting to voice your opposition, kind of renders less risky forms of dissent relatively ineffective, in my opinion. There There are people who might disagree. I mean, for example, the Montgomery bus boycott was completely legal. And yet it was one of the most effective tactics of the civil rights movement. The same could be said about the struggles in in, uh, apartheid South Africa, where it was the boycotts of the white businesses and the, um, was it disenfranchisement? Now I'm blanking out. The... um, refusing to have financial ties to the uh, divestment is Uh the word. You know, those were completely legal tactics, and yet those were some of the most effective. So it's it's a difficult question to ask. I do think that, um, and this is a point that I try to make repeatedly, I do think that our country has become far too passive in its approach to government. Any act that causes uh, any minor disruption is thought of as being um, wholly intolerable. Yeah. You just, I think you may have identified for me sort of a, a phased process here where the people that are choosing to take to the streets to protest is, is one part of a continuum where you, you begin to identify the issue, begin to educate the public, but it, and I may be wrong in this final assumption, and that is that at the end of it all, when when things are going to have an impact is when the economics of that particular issue more more often than not it these issues have to do with economics. When they when that kicks in, when people refuse to buy a product, refuse to support a company, is that when you, or a boycott of a of a bus uh, system, when that becomes the the major part of the equation is that when they succeed more often than not yes and that's a great point uh, michael albert of uh, of z magazine uh writes repeatedly that uh, any strategy of dissent has to raise social cost and it doesn't have to necessarily be economic cost though we are a, a capitalist society and so most costs come down to dollars and cents but you have to make it increasingly costly for um, politics to continue as usual. So whether it's through a boycott that hurts the city, whether it's through some kind of boycott that hurts a corporation, or whether it's repeatedly embarrassing political leadership, um, you have to make it increasingly difficult for those in power to continue their practices. And unfortunately, today, many legal forms of dissent um, don't really do that. I mean, a boycott worked wonderfully in uh, the civil rights movement, but today one wonders with uh, the demise of public transportation and uh, the increased concentration of 
you know, pharmaceuticals and media ownership and so forth, how does one boycott, I mean, how does one boycott uh, General Electric, let's say, when they control, you know, when they're a, a corporate conglomerate? So well, when, I, when Nathan asked, does dissent still work, it's, it's increasingly difficult. Are, are there other forms of dissent out there? And by the way, we're speaking with Jarrett Lavelle. The book is Crimes of Dissent. Are there other forms of dissent taking place right now rather than just the straight boycott? Are, are there are new ways of dissent that are having inroads and, and having an impact? Well, you know, it's important, I think, for listeners to know that dissent can, can cover a whole range of, of issues. Some people dismiss individual choices, such as, you know, making something yourself rather than having to go and purchase it, or whether it is um, catering small local businesses and farmers markets rather than the big, you know, corporate chains and whatnot. Anything like that is a form of dissent through making your own media, um, you know, leaving stickers and, and street stencils and so forth, all the way up to kind of the more you know, the more aggressive, if you will, tactics of direct action. So there's a whole gamut of, um, of strategies. I just hope that people move beyond the Internet and filling out those, those silly online petitions and become a little bit more creative in their dissent. I, I want to get back to the kind of the nexus of your book, which is Crimes of Dissent. The things you are describing are uh, well within the boundaries, what I assume to be within the boundaries of the law. But we're increasingly seeing, and, and sort of this insidious uh, end, other end of this, and talking about moving the protest zone being moved away, the sort of uh, uh, marginalizing the ability to protest. Uh, and I go back to something that happened, uh, probably got ten years ago or more. Uh, it's a high-profile case where Oprah uh, used her show to talk about the production of meat, the effect, the health effects of meat on on people and made uh, a, a statement about she wouldn't eat a hamburger or something to that effect. And she was sued, and I, I believe criminal charges are now possible if you actually say or are active, proactive in dissenting with people's ability or their uh, about meat, about describing meat or meat products or increasingly food products. And I guess what I'm going with all this is this is a criminalization of something that seems to be pretty basic. The ability to say, I think it's a bad idea to eat red meat every day. Though I wouldn't necessarily call it, uh, well, it, Oprah was certainly, um, I don't know if she was dissenting, because she wasn't necessarily opposed to any, any policy or any, um, any government practice, although... But it was about speech. But it was about speech. And ironically, the, uh, the other side was using the, the machinations of government to, uh, if in fact they are suing, to, to try to... Um, silent speech so yeah it, they did it, they sued her and it, took her to court and it was yeah uh, and it shows the 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 murkiness of the difference between speech and action which we touched upon earlier right. and the distinction between the public sphere and the private sector but the consequences of that that particular episode was there have been a slew of laws passed around the country regarding your ability to say to uh, to denigrate products now. And ironically, had she gone outside a meat processing plant and chained herself to the front door, she probably would have received less of a headache yeah. than simply by, by speaking. And that's, you know, one of the, the points that I wanted to, yeah. to emphasize in the book also is that, you know, we really needn't be too afraid of 
you know, risking an arrest. I mean, certainly people need to know what they're doing, and not everyone is is properly positioned to get arrested. One of the things that I have a section in the book that's called Privileged Protesters, which examines, you know, why is it that in the United States, um, whenever you see the face of civil disobedience, it's usually the face of either a white male or at least a white middle-class individual. And... um, Certainly, if people are going to willingly place themselves in front of police, it's a lot easier if you're a white person and don't have a history of tension with law enforcement. But that being said, um, the worst that could happen is you spend a night in jail and uh, make a powerful political statement that will hopefully catch on. We're speaking with Jarrett Lavelle. The uh, book is Crimes of Dissent. Uh, I want to go back real quickly because we're, we're running a little bit short on time. The, the, we're, we, we keep kind of skirting this idea of the media and its effect and how it frames people who are protesting and how much coverage is given. You can have a massive gathering in Washington, D.C. now and not, not a mention uh, in the New York Times, Washington Post, or any of the major media. Uh, and I, I take this back way back to the Cold War, way back when, when there was sort of a uh, – the the demonization of people who protest as being anti-American. And I think that this is a subtext to a lot of what we're discussing here today. It's not, it's this, uh, we, uh, the idea of protesting and dissenting and all the rest of it is within our constitutional rights, but there is a sense, a sensibility among the American public based on decades of being indoctrinated on this, that it is anti-American to protest. Well, and it's, it's a strange formula. I mean, was the Boston Tea Party uh, anti-American, right? right? We we refer to people who protest for civil rights um, as being a defining moment in American history, and yet when people replicate the tactics uh, years later or decades later, it's thought of as being un-American. And so, I mean, yeah. it seems that history is... Uh, is n- history never judges moments adequately you know in the present it always takes some um, yeah. some some time i do want to just make sure that listeners are aware that when i talk about crimes of dissent the word crimes should actually appear in quotations because what i'm talking about are purely nonviolent forms of of dissent and so there might be listeners out there who say well you know, people who, who commit arson or people who, you know, torch cop cars or throw bricks and things of that nature, that's not what we're talking about. Right. So if they hear the news and they hear acts of that, that's not what we're referring to. The word crime is, is meant tongue-in-cheek because the right. idea, as you said before, that you can somehow be penalized for speech or that um, simply voicing one's dissent through minor acts of disruption can trigger a response from the criminal justice system is is noteworthy. Now, now you've got a, a blog right now too that you're you're keeping posted on on all things crime of dissent wise, uh, and that's at uh, crimesofdissent dot com. And you you've been covering a little bit of the uh, the healthcare issue, and I don't want to go off into healthcare as much as I want to uh, focus on what your opinion is of the. Uh, Right wing at these uh, healthcare uh, town hall meetings. meetings. Is there are they doing classic crimes of dissent here when when they stand up and disrupt the meeting and get hauled away? They are not, and okay. the reason they are not is because any act of dissent should be a last resort. 
the dissent should come after there's been open debate, after there's been brainstorming, after there's been discussion, and then, of course, finally, after the policy has, has come into effect. Mm-hmm. What's happening now, there isn't even a health care bill. And so what these individuals are doing is stifling speech, stifling my right to know what the, the policies might be and to, to voice my opinion, too. Now, a lot of people compare and contrast the, the health care hecklers, if you will, to actions of, of Code Pink, whose tactics were uh, seemingly similar, but they were actually quite different. Code Pink engaged in their activism after the war had begun, uh, after the Patriot Act had been enacted, and uh, so on and so forth. And of course, their act of dissent took place in the very locus of where decisions were being made. So they weren't protesting free speech and policy discussion. They were protesting actual government action. Yeah. Well, before we let you go, Jarrett, uh, was, there, was there a favorite part when you were writing this book? Was there, was there one of your, you have many case studies through crimes of dissent. Is there a, one person you spoke to or one point, one revelation you had during this that really stands out for you? You believe it or not, it was uh, an individual by the name of Flip Benham, who is with the group Operation Save America. And uh, this is one of the uh, pro-life, anti-abortion uh, groups. And uh, he, I, I didn't agree with him on virtually everything, <laughs> but I, I agreed with his reasoning. And, uh, you know, as someone who continuously votes third party, uh, I found it very interesting that he continuously votes third party <laughs> and gets criticized by people on the right. Um, I found it very interesting that uh, the way he spoke about government was very similar to the way I spoke about government. And um, I thought someone who is incredibly conservative probably would not have much criticism of the criminal justice system. And in fact, he had a lot of criticism of the criminal justice system. And one of my favorite points that he made when I asked him how he would describe his experience sitting in county jails, and this is a guy who's been arrested well over 50 times, he had said, anyone who wants to know how Abu Ghraib can happen need only get arrested once. Mm-hmm. And I don't say that to scare people off from <laughs> getting arrested. I mean, he is someone who spent weeks in jail as opposed to the lower end of the spectrum where you might spend an hour in jail. But mm-hmm. I found it fascinating that uh, someone who's, uh, who's Policy concerns are so radically different from mine would would have been led to that place the yeah. same way as people on the left. Yes. Well, the book is Crimes of Dissent, Civil Disobedience, Criminal Justice, and the Politics of Conscience. Jarrett Lavelle, have a have a great uh, vacation, and thanks for being on Weekly Signals. J- Jarrett, for having me. Jarrett, thank you for being here. I got I got ten bucks. It says you're detained at the airport. <laughs> I will. And, and, and I got fifty bucks. It says you're going to get renditioned. So I'm just I'm just Uh-oh. letting you know right off the top. Well, we'll see. All right. <laughs> thanks take, again. Jarrett. Thank you. Bye bye. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. And this is Weekly Signals.